Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, and it reads, One day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of the bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Don't come, do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the, uh, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. The land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go. For I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. As you're preparing to take your seats, help me introduce the title for today's message. Everyone say, there's a you in freedom. You may take your seats. There's a you in freedom. I have been utilizing uh, Zora Neale Hurston's book, Moses, Man of the Mountain, as another conversation partner in this series on Exodus. And so, as I have been, of course, an absolutely amazing African-American writer, I keep lifting up at the beginning of the sermon bits and pieces of her portrayal. I'm doing this because I think she's absolutely wonderful. She's an absolutely wonderful narrator. The way that she sees stories, I just want to lift up recovering the genius that was her. Uh, not saying that this takes away from anything of scripture, and there are definitely some places where she deviates, but I want to read this piece now, uh, talking about how Moses comes in contact with the burning bush. She writes, Moses rounded a large boulder inside of the spot where he was going, and went on easily. There was a bush 
and there was a rock under it. He was within a few feet of it when the bush burst into furious flames. Moses could not believe his eyes, but neither could he shut them on the sight because the bush was burning brightly, but its leaves did not twist and crumple in the heat. And they did not fall as ash beneath charred limbs as they should have done. It just burned. And Moses, although he was, could no more help coming closer to try and see the why of the burning bush than he could quit growing old. Both things were bound up in his birth. Moses drew near the bush. Moses spoke a great voice, which Moses did not know. Take off your shoes. We've been walking through this amazing story of the children of Israel. The book of Exodus is the development of God's chosen people. God doesn't give us reason for why he chose them, nor is that a really big importance. God chooses what God chooses, and God uses who God uses. But that gift is meant to be a gift to so many others. We've been walking through and we've heard how there was a, a previous Hebrew named Joseph sent to this land ahead of time, does some amazing things to preserve Egypt, but as time would have, as it happens everywhere, Joseph dies, and everyone that is familiar with Joseph's story dies, and so does the lore and understanding of the importance of Joseph and or his people. New pharaohs rise, and there is constant concern about this growing population of foreigners in their land. There's always concern about the other. And we have to be cautious about those types of concerns, not just because, uh, you know, everybody is nice and everybody would treat us well, no, but because of what it does to us. And many of us, no matter what your social location or ethnicity or race, you can hear stories about what happens when we other people, whether in scripture or in current life. We know our country has had a great uh, history of othering people. We've seen things like this happen in Nazi Germany of othering people. We see this happening through genocides even on the continent of Africa when we other people. And the Bible tells us that othering is not a new concept. It is not new to human experience. We have been othering ever since we have been being. And the Egyptians are no different. They other the Hebrews. They are concerned about their power, and thus they enslave them for their own benefit. They say it's fear. But I'm still amazed that fear turns into economic benefit and movement. That 
that stands out to me. It's something about that. But they turn this into now these Egyptians working and they make it so hard because God is with them. God keeps allowing them to thrive and flourish even under the worst conditions, even when everything is set against them. There's things that keep moving them forward, that this begins to, to rattle and ruffle their captors, that then they set off the, the codes that would just blow any of our minds today, kill every Hebrew boy that is born. And Moses is born under these laws. It's not Jim Crow, but maybe this is Moses Crow, right? This is a whole new set of laws that, that stand out to tell us why Pharaoh is so concerned and his parents love him enough, we talked about it last week, to hold his life. He's born illegal. But there's so many who come along to make sure he's there. And I lift up, and you'll hear this from the pulpit with me often, I lift up the fact that there were so many women along this, not because there weren't amazing men along the process, because oftentimes women have been left out of the storytelling of the gifts of the people of God. It is a mother that is there. It is a midwife that is there. It is a sister that is there. It is a princess that is there. That Moses' life is predicated, dependent, and preserved because some women saw Moses. And I said, looking at the beauty of my wife, saying, thank God for women. And if there's no other church where you feel affirmed, know that you're affirmed in this church. I, I believe in God's ability to use you. I believe in God's ability to raise you. I believe that God could call you to every single office imaginable because you're not made less than, but you're made complimentary to. I just want to say it so you hear it. If there's a question about it, there's no more questioning that needs to be answered. And I think most of you know that by now. And Moses makes it through all of this. He is ascended into now Pharaoh's palace. And it is only my divine imagination because the Bible does not fill in the gaps. But I've often wondered, what did it feel like for Moses to live amongst the captors of his people? What does it feel like to be one of the oppressors and one of the oppressed? When do you make that choice? Am I more Egyptian for the princess saved me or am I more Hebrew because that's the mother that birthed me? Where do I find myself? And maybe he's a lot like many of us. Doesn't feel perfectly fitted in any one location. The palace has its allures and draws, but it still ain't 100% him. And the Hebrews now no longer connect to him because he has been elevated in such a way that it, it invites folks to hate on where he is and his experience. There's no whip driving him day and night. There's no uh, limitation on the food he can get. And nobody sees that although he's in per uh, Pharaoh's palace, he's not in Pharaoh's family. And he's still hated 
even while he's there. Princess loves him. Princess sees him to be beautiful, but not Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's real son definitely doesn't because now he becomes a potential threat. Scripture tells us, and we talked about this in Bible study, this is no shameless plug. This is an encouragement, a pastoral plug. You should find yourself in Bible study. I'm telling you, we're getting some really great stuff. Wednesday night, 7 p.m., you should be there. We talked about how now Moses, with this terror in his soul, with this worry and concern, this tension of who am I, goes out on a walk one day. Fully trained in the Egyptian arts, fully trained to be a, a military general. He is a man of ability. He has led wars already. He has been moved for and he goes out and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Scripture says he notices it. And it doesn't fill in the rest of the gaps. We don't know what he thinks, but we can presume. Scripture next says that he looks around to see if anybody is looking. It's that move that gives us a clue that he had intended to do something. I don't look around, make sure there ain't no witnesses unless I'm about to do something to be witnessed. You understand me? Right? So he goes, he goes, he steps out, does his check. Slides up on the Egyptian. Scripture says that he kills him. Now, my sanctified imagination would like to say that first he was like, hey man, stop beating that Hebrew. Hey man, you know that ain't right. Man, don't treat him like that. He's part of the human family. That's my sanctified imagination. My non-sanctified imagination said, he was like, nah, I'm about to catch bro slipping. Before he knew what was happening, he was getting them hands thrown quick, fast. Bow, bow, bow. Before he knew it, Moses is on top of him, and he can't even call out for his life. Moses takes his life and then covers it up. Walks off. Next day, he shows back up. Surely he is the hero of the people now. You know, the story has already gone out. There's, a, there's this Egyptian that's like Hebrew, but he ain't really Hebrew, but he kind of like one of us. Man, he out there taking out Egyptian oppressors for us. This is our savior. He slow shows back up, and now he sees two Hebrews fighting. He sees Hebrew on Hebrew crime. I'm going to walk away from that one. Uh, anyway, he slides in and is like, hey, man, why y'all fighting? Y'all friends, y'all brothers, y'all kin. Man, we shouldn't get down like this. And in typical fashion, whether you oppressed or not oppressed, somebody slide up on you telling you why you should be doing what you should be doing or shouldn't be doing what you shouldn't be doing. You meet them just with that. Man, who made you ruler over me? You ain't, he said like this, you ain't my daddy. It was, it was similar though. He was like, you know, you ain't the leader over me. Oh, that's it. You don't tell me what to do. Come on now. 
And then he hits Moses. Oh, you think that since you're around here killing the Egyptians, but you're going to rise up and kill me now? Moses is like, oh, this is moving in a way I didn't think it would. And it says that the word gets back to Pharaoh. I've often wondered how the word got back to Pharaoh. If Moses had looked out to make sure nobody was there, and let's presume that he's, he was true, nobody saw it, who else would have been there? But the Hebrew he saved. You mean that the very one he potentially saved is the one that snitched? I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this because there are moments where we may do for somebody else and the very thing that we do for them will be turned around and used against us. Whispers make it back to Pharaoh and now Pharaoh is fully able to come against Moses. See, Moses, we let you live in our house, but you was never really one of us. And how dare you lift your hand against an Egyptian. See, we are Egyptians, and we let you act like an Egyptian. You know, you walked like an Egyptian, but you weren't really an Egyptian. And now you have the audacity to act as if me allowing you into the palace now puts you in a position over the Egyptians. How dare you not know your role and not play your part? You are a Hebrew that we have allowed into the house. You are nothing more than a house Negro to us. But scripture, scripture says... I, you got to come back. You know what I'm saying? You got to come back. <laughs> Scripture says Moses recognizes this and runs. He runs completely away. He runs until he can get as far away from Egypt as his feet will take him. He runs so much that now he is weary and tired and he's waiting by a well just to get some water. He ran so fast, he didn't even have time to change his clothes. He still looks like where he's been. And when he shows up, he's sitting at this well. These women come up to try to get water, and the shepherds of the space chase them away. Now, Moses is tired, he's thirsty, but he ain't one to have the women folk treated like this. He also needs some water, and they got buckets. I'm just saying, it might be both and. He might be chivalrous and needy. You know what I'm saying? But that fight is still in him. And the same Moses that was trained and able now rises up and chases away multiple shepherds and finally lets the women draw water. They give him a bit and they go about their business, moving now much faster than they normally would. In fact, Scripture says they get back home so early, their father's like, how y'all get here so quick? He's like, yeah, it was this dude. He kind of made sure that the shepherds start treating us bad. Which probably meant that daddy knew that they would have to deal with shepherds because they was always dealing with shepherds and always trying to do it. But dad didn't do nothing. That's another story. Coming back to this part, it says that then he's like, well, if he's going to take care of y'all, can we at least take care of him? Invite him to the crib. Bring him to the house. Let's get him something to eat. The story goes before we get to three 
that it's years that have passed. Moses has now been grafted into the family of Jethro. So much so that Jethro offers his daughter Zipporah for his wife. Moses now has children. Moses is living a completely different life. The issues of Egypt are in his past. The worry about his life are in his past. Rearview mirror, if you will. And then the scriptures open up, verse 1, that now he is going about his stepfather's business. He's taking out the sheep and he's moving the flock and he's gone so far that he's bumped into a mountain. Now, depending on the version that you read, we may miss the beauty of the Hebrew scriptures. The Hebrew scriptures say he finds Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai are the same thing. However, Horeb has meaning. The word Horeb means dry land, dry place, wasteland, desolate. Moses is in a desolate, dry place. And of course, the Biblical scholar in me would ask, Moses, if you're trying to feed a flock of sheep, why take them to dry land? And I, I, I'm one that doesn't believe that the Bible gives us certain information for no reason. This more than likely is the writer's cue to us that although it is not rightly said, that the location also mirrors Moses's internal position as well. He is where he is because he feels as he feels. And that although he has run away from Egypt, although he's gotten away from all the problems and challenge, although he started a brand new family, has wife and children, is being successful in his current station, something just ain't right. And, and, and maybe this is, is helpful because some of you may know what this is like. Some of you may know what it's like to be successful and still feel dry. Some of you may know what it's like to get away from all of the things that have been chasing you, find a new place, but still don't feel satiated with what God is doing in your life. You feel that you are in a dry land, a wasteland, a space where nobody else would want to go. God, why do I feel like this when everything around me tells me I'm okay? Looks good. Things are working. Why, God, am I here? Scripture says he's marching them around in a desolate place. Then, Scripture says, and this is kind of an insert. This is a kind of after the fact. So we're following the narrative, but the writer, the narrator, if you will, gives us extra space to say, that although the mountain is called wasteland, it's also the mountain of God. The mountain 
It's not a place where everybody wants to go. The mountain doesn't seem like it's fertile. The mountain seems dry. It seems as though nothing else should be there. It seems as if this would be the last place that somebody might bump into or have an encounter with God. Yet it is this place that God doesn't wait for the fertile ground. God doesn't need everything to be beautiful. God doesn't need everything to be amazing. But God can have an encounter with you even in the desolate place. In fact, maybe it is the desolate encounters that really strengthen us for what God wants to do. God meets him in the desolate places. And I know sometimes we don't want to admit how desolate we feel, but can I suggest that maybe this is God's preparation even for you? It's a reason why you're unhappy. It's a reason why you're not satisfied. It's a reason that you have not been able to, to feel completely fulfilled. Maybe God is shaking some things inside of you. But it's not until you get away from everybody else, everything else, all of the things that you think that you can do that God might finally be able to catch your attention. You're so busy focusing on everything and everybody else. So busy trying to make it happen on your own. So busy believing that it's all your power, all your ingenuity, all your effort, that every now and then God has the way till you get to a place where there's nothing else you can do so you finally can see what God is able to do. Maybe you're there for a good reason. Desolate place. And this is something that jumps out to me. We live in California. We live in a space that is known for drought. We know that when you have a lot of dry land, that fires jump up all the time. This more than likely isn't the first time Moses has seen fire. This probably isn't the first time Moses has seen a bush on fire. But this show enough is the first time he encountered a bush on fire that ain't burning up. Now, give me a pastoral privilege, if you will, to preach something in a way that I think is integral. I believe we can learn from Moses. But one of the things that I get, and I've talked to people in office meetings and everything, is sometimes we're waiting for God to talk to us like he talked to Moses. I'm told, well, pastor, I haven't had a burning bush experience. I've never heard the audible voice of God. How do I know God is speaking to me? I wish God would just make it plain and clear. I want to follow what God has for me, but I'm not always 100% sure what that looks like. I wish he would just set this bush ablaze and speak to me from the fire. Let's be clear. There are no other fire bushes that speak to anybody else throughout all scripture. If it happened only once in scripture, 
it might not be the pattern we should be looking for in our own lives. Just as an offering. But this does mean that although it may look, not look just like Moses, doesn't mean God can't talk to you. Because if God showed up to me in a bush on fire, I'm going to miss God. Okay, okay, maybe y'all different. Maybe you all are of the elk of going to investigate things. Something is out of place. And so your onus is, uh-oh, something don't seem right. Let me go investigate. Do-do-do-do-do to see what this thing is. I don't know if it's my background, um, the cultural connections that I have, but there are others like me, when we see things that don't make sense, our first response is not, let me go and check this out. There are so many movies that have shown us it's always the person that's like, let me go and check this out. That's the first one to disappear. So if I saw a fire and the bush wasn't burning, I'm probably like this, not today, Satan. You're not getting me today. Right? That would probably be my response. Or worse, I might be thinking, if this fire grows, things could get worse. Let me put the fire out. But herein is the gift that I want you to see. Everybody say, God sees you. God speaks to Moses in a way to strike Moses' curiosity. Which means how God may speak to you will be something that strikes your curiosity. And maybe it isn't a burning bush, but maybe it is this deep-seated dissatisfaction. Maybe it is a joy that is overwhelming while you do something. Maybe it is somebody you trust that can be that voice of reason. God can use a myriad of opportunities to speak to you. But the gift that I want you to know is that God sees you. God sees you so clearly that God knows what will draw you. God knows what will interact in your heart. And sometimes, we can be honest, some of us have fought that feeling. God, this just don't make sense to me. How am I going to do this? Surely you couldn't be calling me to that. There's way too many people already doing it. Or maybe I've tried that before and it didn't work. I'm gonna jump ahead a bit, but I think it's perfect for me to say this now. Maybe one of the reasons why Moses rose up against the Egyptian was because all his life people had told him he was special. His birth mother saw he was beautiful and talked about how they had saved him and that he was saved for a reason. 
The princess, although Pharaoh didn't love him, she loved him and she grew him and saw how much he was moving and she spoke into his life. Man, you're going to be special. You may not see it now, but you're going to do something special. You are a leader. And some of you, you know just what that's like. Ever since you've been a kid, people have been speaking these things into your life and you've tried to live into them and you've often failed and you don't understand why there seems to be this disconnect from what you're hearing people say versus when you try to live into what they say and so Moses raises up one day if I'm meant to be special let me go out and start saving the people now and his own attempts to do what he's called to do I think you missed it his own attempts to do what he is called to do created to do made to do Purpose to do, fail. Because he might have understood his purpose, but he didn't rightly understand the God that gave it. Can you, can you imagine the type of hodgepodge of religious life Moses probably would be living? Learn from his birth mother about this God of the Israelites and, and, and all this stuff that, that, that they've heard from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We hear these stories and he's looking at 400 years of oppression and wondering, is your God real? Then he goes to Egypt and sees their gods winning. All they do is win, win, win no matter what. I'm going to say something and I know this is going to be offensive. But I know I need to say it. He is like the Patrick Mahomes to the 49ers. You feel it now? It just tastes nasty in your mouth, doesn't it? It don't taste right. Ugh. Ugh. Right? He is so... It's too soon, too soon. He is so confused at trying to understand who he should follow. Because it looks like one group is winning. One group, their gods are providing. But this God that he's heard of just seems to be inept. Then he happens to go to Midian and meets another priest of who knows what religion. Doesn't even say. The scripture's not even concerned with what Jethro is practicing. We just know he's practicing something. Can you imagine the mixture of religious affiliations that Moses has? And despite all of this, God sees him. And then God calls him. Everybody say, God calls him. Scripture often does this. It says the name repeated. It happens to Samuel. It happens to a number of folks. It never says the name once. It all, well, it never is not the right word. It often says the name twice. And this two times of stating means that you can know and you can trust that it's not by accident. You're not confused at what you heard. He didn't say Moses. And maybe you thought he said something different. There's no confirmation that God is calling you. He says Moses and just in case you didn't hear me, Moses, I'm talking to you. 
Moses is called by God. But God doesn't speak until Moses follows his curiosity. Scripture says God waits to see Moses come towards the fire. God waits to see Moses focus on the thing that God is drawing him to. God waits to see Moses finally be willing to give attention to the things that are in front of him so God can speak something to him that maybe he hadn't heard before. Moses, Moses, stop. Before you get closer, take your shoes off. Wow. I'm on a dry, desolate mountain, and you want me to take my shoes off? Yeah, 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 take your shoes off because where you are is holy. Now, I've often wondered, is the place holy because God just chose it to be holy? Or is it holy because God showed up there? The place otherwise may have no meaning, but it has meaning because God showed up. It's holy not because of its own nature, but because of the supernatural nature that's happening upon it. Thus, trees in this area don't burn up because the super is touching the natural. God is showing that I'm doing something special here, not because the space in and of itself is special, but because I happen to be here. And since I happen to be here, things that you would expect to happen may not happen in the same way. This is why we ought to show up to holy places. And I'm so glad that God has changed what is holy. Holy doesn't just have to show up at a church. It doesn't just have to show up in a religious institution. But let me tell you something. If God has shown up in a place multiple times, there got to be some God residue. (laughs) Oh, you missing it. You missing it. If God has shown up in a place before, there's some God residue. And the more often that God shows up, the more residue that's left over. This is why I come in here and say, you may not be ready, but I come in here ready because I've seen God show up in this place before. There's residue in the atmosphere. There's residue on the stage. There's residue out there on the news. There's residue on the altar. There's residue of my God in this place. And watch this. It's so pervasive that you feel it and you don't know what to call it. I promise you, take your seats, take your seats. I remember in the middle of COVID, right, we have all the stuff going, we're we're shut down, we open up to do the uh, vaccination center, we got all that going, and we have one of the news reporters come, and he's interviewing us about, you know, why we're doing what we're doing, all this good stuff. And then all of a sudden he says, he said, you know, I don't come to the church often, but every time I step on this place, man, I tell you, it just feels different. Now, he wasn't a believer. He didn't know what that difference was. He thought, oh, well, you know, y'all got some good grass. I was like this, sir, people have worshiped at this location for over 50 years. If 50 years of worship can't make a place feel different, if 50 years of God showing up can't make some stuff be left behind, 
surely you feel it. Why? Because God has shown up here too many times for you not to feel God's presence. Over 50 years. God has shown up in this place. It's residue here. Moses, take your shoes off. I'm here now. And, you know, God is trying to teach because you got to remember, this is before the law. This is before the children of Israel. They don't even understand fully who God is. God is trying to make sure he appropriates for them just how amazing God is. Man, take your shoes off. I want you not to bring in the dirt and the dust of over there, but come into this place knowing that anything is possible. You are on holy ground. And not only did I see you, and not only am I calling you, but I have purposed you. God purposes you. He goes through and he says, maybe some of the things that have been in Moses' heart all this time, I'm the God of your fathers. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I know you probably have been asking, what took me so long? I know you've been wondering about my ability because your people have been in oppression and powerless for so long that you are willing to give up on me. In fact, some people are probably are telling you it's that foolish belief in that God that has you all messed up. See, that's the worst thing that could have happened to your people. They gave you this belief, and now you don't understand what the power of God can do because the power is really in you. You got to fight for it all by yourself. He reaches Moses and says, no, I've been watching. I've been hearing their Voices and groans cry out to me. The Egyptians have been terribly cruel to them. However, I was waiting on you. Sometimes this moment brings me to tears. I, I want to be clear. Everybody ain't Moses. I get it. But the fact that God would put the salvation of a whole group of people on Moses' shoulders. God was waiting for the one to be raised up that God could use to do what God wanted to do. And man, we should be praying that God will raise up those leaders in our lives too. You don't understand the pressure that sits on those shoulders when folks got to come and do this. We've seen this again and again. Individuals to whom have such an amazing mantle. God says, I'm calling you to lead my people out of Egypt. Me? I'm not even in Egypt. My last point, and I promise I'm done. Moses' purpose forces him to go back and deal with a past he had been running from. When our purposes are so individual that it's only about us, we miss the moves of God. When our purpose is big enough to encompass that God is using us for the larger purpose of the others that God calls us to, we see the mighty hand of God. 
But for sometimes before we can rise up in that power, we have to go back to the places that we failed. We have to go back to the places that ran us away. We have to go back to the places that hurt us, that broke us, that made us feel that we were less than anything that we could be. God sometimes puts the purpose to put us back there. Because how are you going to fight that thing if you ain't willing to fight this thing? Moses says, you got to do it. Because I've called you to do it. And I believe this is so true. God sees you. God calls you. God purposes you. But God does all of this so that you can be a part of the freedom that God is calling for you and for so many others. Yes, there is a you in freedom. Not in the letters of the word, but there's a you in freedom because God sees you. God calls you and God purposes you to go back and participate in the work that God is doing. Can I tell you, do you understand how powerful you can be if you're working with God and not against God? Do you know what you can see if you participate with God and not just by yourself? Let me tell you that God wants this and in typical Baptist fashion. It's a reason why this story is so prevalent for the children of Israel. This is one of the stories that they draw on as they think about a Messiah. Because what they saw in Moses, salvation that came through Moses, they can only ascribe to what the full Messiah will do. That there's another one that is coming whose shoulders are bigger than Moses' shoulders, who won't just lead his people out of political and national slavery, but will lead them uh, uh, beyond the greatest captor that ever has been, the captor that has been winning since the beginning of time, the captor that nobody had been able to step up to. And, and we think that that is a person, but let me let you know, there ain't no person big enough for that one. There is the power that sin had reigned against us, that made us always in captivity. Oh, but there was a salvation. Oh, there was a savior. Oh, there was one that God rose up out of Egypt that came back and said, you can be free with me because who the son sets free is free indeed. There is a savior. There is a God. And this salvation <coughs> is not just meant for this life, but it extends even into the life to come. That God is so amazing that he sent his Savior to come that we might be able to be free right now and free later. That we can finally say what King and the Civil Rights Movement have been saying so long. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty. I am free at last. Pray with me.